Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today we're talking with a very special guest, an artist from the island of Hawaii. Today, we are graced with the presence of a musician, in addition to someone who is incredibly knowledgeable about food systems and about aspects of social sustainability. And that person is Makana. He is a slack key guitar master from Hawaii. And so we gave him a call at his house on the island of Oahu so that we could talk about some of the things that he's been doing in the last year in relation to food activism, growing food in his own house with aquaponics. So Seth, how much do you know about aquaponics? Aquaponics as in, you know, uh, where fish live? Makana has an aquaponics system in his house and he is growing food using fish. Wow, food with fish. Yes, he is using the waste products from the fish to fertilize the food to then grow food and continue the cycle using his system so that way it remains sanitary and also maximizes the throughput of food that he can grow in a particular area. Aquaponics is a really fascinating technology, and we didn't talk about it too much today, but it's very, very cool. Well, I can't wait to hear from Makana, who plays a very, very interesting style of guitar. And maybe we'll hear some of his music as we go along as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about slack key guitar. What is it? What makes it different? And then we're going to jump into some food issues and then a bit more. Let's do it. Makana, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about some of the inspirations for your music, some of the things that you have been able to do over the last year in regards to music and the Occupy movement, and also some of the things that you're doing with food production. Right on. Happy to join you guys. Aloha. Yeah, aloha. Actually, in speaking about aloha, I was wondering what that meant. Well, it's commonly colloquially used as a greeting or something you say when you're departing, but the real meaning is... Ha is the term you'll find inside of Hawaiian words often, like aloha, mahalo, haole, haloa. And ha is the breath of life. Ha is the essence that animates us. And alo is to face. And so when you aloha someone, it's actually an action of sharing your essence with them. And also it's a recognition that whatever it is that is inside of you that's bringing you to life and giving you life 
is shared and emanating from the other person. So it's a consciousness and it's an action and it's a way of interacting with other people. When you aloha someone, you, in essence, value their well-being as you would value your own and you act from that consciousness. So it's a whole culture that we have here. Yeah. Where are you at in Hawaii? I'm in the island of Oahu and I live on the southeast facing shore about a minute walking from the ocean. It's a little blustery, but sky is blue, the ocean's blue, the palm trees are swaying. We've been out in the ocean and the yard and it's such a great place. I'm so blessed. It's beautiful, man. So are you originally from Hawaii or did you move out there? What's what's your background? Why are you out in, on the uh, island of Oahu? Uh, when I was being given my mission to come to planet Earth, I decided to be born in Hawaii. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I'm born and raised here on the island of Oahu. I've always lived on this island. It's a great balance between city life and nature. And I've traveled a lot in the world, but this is my home culture. And I'm very, very, very at peace and happy living here in Hawaii. And so what was it that got you started in playing slack key? I don't know about our listeners, but for me, I'm not familiar with what slack key would even sound like in comparison to other guitar styles. The easiest way to explain it is people are familiar with like bluegrass comes from America and Appalachian roots. You have flamenco from Spain. You have bossa nova from Brazil. Different cultures have different ways of playing the guitar. Hawaii has something we call ki ho'alu, also known as Hawaiian slack key guitar. And the guitar first arrived to Hawaii back in the late 18th century, and it arrived on whaling ships. And then sometime around, oh, right before 1800, Captain Vancouver of the British Isles came here on a ship and gifted the king Kamehameha with four cattle and a bull. And so the king put a kapu on the cattle and a bull, which made them sacred, and no one could touch them. Well, they started to multiply over a generation, and they got out of control. And of course, the Hawaiians would build their houses out of grass. So the cattle were going on people's land and eating all the grass, so they had like a housing problem. So eventually, Kamehameha asked the help of the vaqueros, the cowboys to come, the Mexican cowboys to come and teach the Hawaiians how to cowpunch and manage the cattle. And when they came, they brought their guitars. Now, when they brought their guitars, they also had used some open tunings. If you go back in the roots of Spanish music, they do use open tunings. And that's what Kihuahua essentially is, is playing in an open or slack key tuning. But the Hawaiians adopted them to fit their falsetto voices. And so the slack key guitar of Hawaii is a style that is basically simulating in an open slack key guitar tuning that's tuned to a chord, simulating alternating bass rhythm and melody. So it really sounds like two or three guitars at once. It's a beautiful style. And different cultures do have slack key and open tuning music, but when you hear Hawaiian slack key, it's uniquely and distinctly Hawaiian. It really conjures up this beautiful sense of place of Hawaii. Where did you learn how to play the slack key guitar? I was very, very blessed. When I was 10 years old and had been playing ukulele for a few years, I met one of the protégés of the old masters, and his name's Bobby Modero Jr., and he had learned from Raymond Kane, who has since passed on. And Bobby was about 10 years older than me, and we became like brothers. And I would sleep on his floor next to his bed every weekend. My mom would drop me off for three days, and I'd just jam out with him and learn from him and hang out. And I fell in love with the art form. And then when I was 13, I received a tutelage from the late Uncle Sonny Chillingworth, who was considered the great master and living legend of the art form. And a year after I learned from him, he passed away. So I, I was very blessed to learn from the best and, you know, back in the 1960s, they called it a dying art form because there are only a handful of people. Now, most of those masters have passed away. So in my generation, 
of the Hawaiian slacky traditional style, there are maybe five or so genuine Hawaiian slacky guitar players. There are very few left in the world today. Where do you see the art form going? Where, where do you see it spreading? Are you thinking of you know, opening up apprenticeships or teaching it to other people? Well, I'm 33 now and turning 34. And back when I was 15, I actually had a little school that I would teach out of my parents' house. And I had about 15 or 20 students. But then my career took off and I got more busy. So I don't really teach now except for uh, on occasion. However, in the future, I'd like to. But as far as the art form goes, my main concern first was to develop the audience for it because having an audience really is essential to the life of the art form. And so we've been trying to get the music out there to people and introduce it as much as possible. And things like I just had my music in the movie The Descendants with George Clooney, which was filmed here in Hawaii. It's a beautiful story. It really did Hawaii justice as far as showcasing the authenticity of the culture and the way of life here. And the whole entire soundtrack was slack key with some of the old legends like Gabby Pahinui and my teacher, Sonny Chillingworth, and some of the more contemporary players like myself. And so that reached a lot of people. But slack key also, aside from the traditional aspect, I've been working on evolving the art form. I have a style I do called slack rock, where I'll interpret songs like Led Zeppelin songs or Pink Floyd or folk rock songs that usually have a full band arrangement and I'll interpret them on a single guitar with the vocals and people are always asking me you know do you have like some kind of background music or did you lay tracks because it's hard to believe that all that sound is coming out of one guitar so essentially distilling out the culture aspect and taking the universal aspects of the technical approach I can reach more people and then use that as a bridge to bring them back to the more cultural sounds. And you mentioned that when the Cowboys came over to manage the cattle, they brought their guitars with them. What was the music like before the guitar came to Hawaii? The history of Hawaiian music is incredible. It's really incredible. And, and I say that because not only because I love it and I'm from here, but it is a story that really is unlike any other cultural music story in just maybe two or three generations. The music completely evolved and became, well, I'll go into it in a minute where it went, but it started out just with Pahu and different hula, Pahu is a hula drum, different hula implements that were percussive. And the only melodic instrument was the Ohehano Ihu, which was a nose flute, which we use in our music today. It's a beautiful sounding flute. And then there was the chant. The voice was used in the Oli, which was a chant. And the chants shared everything from lineage to dirges to honoring people and places. And there were chants for everything. And some of the chanters would memorize generations of lineage and chant literally for days straight without stopping. And they were very powerful. And wow. of course, there were no written language at the time. So the chants carried a lot of the history of the people. And then upon contact with the missionaries in 1820, it changed everything. Of course, the missionaries brought some things that today people might look upon as maybe having had a negative impact on the culture, but they also did bring music with them. And Hawaiians had never really heard what we consider in the West as music up until that point. So if you look at the next few years, it's interesting, the missionary logs that they kept. And, you know, in the early logs, a lot of the logs were disappointing. You know, the Hawaiians couldn't hold a tune and they weren't really disciplined. They didn't understand the music, but they were curious about it. And they would come and they would hear this music and they, the missionaries used the music to get the Hawaiians to come to the churches and to hear the sermons. So eventually 
the Hawaiians, as they did with many other things that were introduced to their culture, they adopted it as their own. And they became so adept at it that within 20 or so years, they had glee clubs popping up all over the islands. And the uh, mo'i, the kings and queens and the ali'i, the chief echelon, that was their favorite pastime was to sing and have these song contests. And these song contests continue to this day. And so then there was the Victorian influence where they, of course, the early instruments were more piano from the churches and there were harpsichords and things like that. There were strings that came in. And then outside of those higher echelon circles, the more common folk were playing guitars. And then there was an interesting evolution because on one hand, some of the kings decided to create a Royal Hawaiian band. And so they brought in band leaders from Prussia. And this had a big influence on Hawaiian music because, of course, the band leaders had their European way of creating and doing music, and they applied that to Hawaiian. So, for instance, if you listen to uh, Hawaii Ponoi, which is a song that we consider almost like the national anthem of Hawaii, the melody goes, Hawaii Ponoi, Nanai Komoi, Kalani and it's very somber and it's not what you would think of as Hawaiian music because it's using a classic Prussian melody. Right, it but sounds very much like a, like kind of a dirge in some ways. Or almost like that uh, My Country Tis of Thee. Isn't that what that it, song's called? It's, it's very similar and, and so this is where it gets interesting is, and I'm bringing this all to a point here and I'm trying to weave a story because it was happening in different ways and at the same time. As the plantation era started, which was when the sugarcane and the pineapple companies came in and started using large amounts of land to grow and export sugarcane and pineapple. They needed workers, so they brought in huge populations of workers. And, of course, they came from Japan, China, Korea, the Philippines. They came from Portugal. They came from Europe. They came from Polynesia. And they brought with them their music. One of the things that happened then was one of the Portuguese immigrants brought something that was called the braguinha that was sort of a predecessor to the ukulele and he started to build ukuleles in Hawaii and that had a huge effect on Hawaiian music and of course the guitar and then in the late 1800s Joseph Kekuku accidentally discovered and you know we say invented the steel guitar he was playing with a bottleneck and it kind of dropped on the guitar and it made a funny sound so he started sliding with it and that's where the slide came from. And that, of course, not only revolutionized Hawaiian music, it went around to revolutionize blues and Indian music and country music around the world. So then there was the Hawaiian swing jazz era in the early 20th century when Hawaiian music became the biggest selling genre of music in the world and was essentially a first world music craze. And it goes on. So the thing about Hawaiian music is if you talk about traditional Hawaiian music, the honest answer is there was no such thing as traditional Hawaiian music. Tradition is a living Thing. And what happened was the Hawaiians would constantly assimilate all of these different influences that came from different parts of the world. And because they were so good at assimilating and embracing, they created this 
beautiful music that has what I consider today some of the most moving melodies in all cultural music. So when you hear Hawaiian music today, it has all of these roots inside of it. Yeah, it's incredible at how the people of the islands were able to change and adapt their music so quickly to all of these different influences. And I'm wondering what that says for the way in which the culture or maybe in general cultural changes occur. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it is incredible. I mean, I think, you know, in the music aspect, it's obviously, you know, it's mind blowing and it's beautiful. You know, another example is Ikawa Purdy, who was a cowpunch, Paniolo, we call him. He was a cowboy from the Big Island, or also known as Moku Okeave. And in the late 1800s, he went on to Wyoming to win the world champion rodeo. He was number one. So Hawaiians had this incredible ability to adapt and then become the best at something. But I mean, when you talk about influences changing culture, there are those sorts of things that come in, different ways of dealing with life, different methods for securing resources and whatnot. And I think that in general, there's always a destructive element and a creative element to something. And that's life. That's how life maintains balance. On one hand, you know, people look at changes negative. On another hand, it can bring about a better quality of life. I think from my point of view, the idea of the corporate consumer culture coming in, which is not really a culture, it's really a programming and conditioning that is one thing that can be across the board detrimental to a culture because it undermines the value system. It's fine to learn a new method for fishing. It's fine to learn a new method for ranching. It's fine to learn a new method for singing. It's fine to learn a new way of organizing your politics or your communities or building your house. But when you move away from the values that are ancestral, from the values that obviously worked over generations and generations, and those values are systematically removed, that becomes very dangerous to a culture. We've talked to a lot of people on this show, namely Helena Norberg-Hodge, about how corporations come into a place, they bring you know, new technologies, and the culture kind of becomes reliant on those technologies in a lot of ways. But it sounds to me like Hawaii has kind of taken all these new incomers and just embraced them all and kind of incorporated it into their culture. It's been a dance. I mean, in some ways, the Hawaiians were nearly wiped out by syphilis when the missionaries came. So yeah. that's why I try not to take an opinion or take a stance of saying this is good, this is bad. You know, I look at cause and effect. And with Hawaii, there is a strong sense of wanting to perpetuate the culture and identity. Number one, we are the most isolated island chain on the planet. And like in the past 20 years or so, there's been a big movement called Punana Leo, which has been a language movement where schools have sprouted up all over Hawaii that teach all subjects in the language of Hawaiian, or we call it Olelo Hawaii. And this has been amazing. And of course, language is at the core of maintaining culture because we think in terms of language. So losing a language is losing a way of thinking. And so this was a very important part to perpetuating the culture. And of course, the music is alive. And the dance, the hula, is a huge, huge part of the culture as well. And with that comes the chant. Some things that are not doing so well are the sustainable environmental and food practices that Hawaiians had. And the Hawaiians were very, very strict about natural resources. The system of managing natural resources in ancient times was called Ahupua'a. And the Ahupua'a was basically a division of land that ran from the top of the mountains out to maybe a half mile out at sea. And so the land was divided into these Ahupua'as. 
And what they they had different systems of different people would manage like the fish ponds, different people would manage the lo'i or the taro fields, different people would manage the uala, the dry area, sweet potato, different people would manage the livestock. And there were cycles when things were planted according to the moon. There were cycles when fish could be harvested. If those were broken, the penalty was often death. And so they knew that, you know, in order to survive, they needed to manage things carefully. And things were, of course, back in ancient times, you know, like the introduction of the sweet potato completely altered the way that the locations and the growth of, of the population because that allowed for growing in dryland taro, which was the main food substance that sustained the culture for many generations. It needs a lot of water. And when the walla or the sweet potato was introduced, they were able to migrate to more dry areas. So they were very sensitive. Of course, they didn't have the technology we have today. They're very sensitive to maintaining resources. If you fast forward to statehood, up until statehood, we were growing at least half of our food and sometimes more. Now our consumption of energy and food is somewhere around 95% imported. So it's a very precarious place to be. We're very, very dependent on the supply and demand chain. And it's unfortunate, and I attribute it to monopolistic practices. I mean, whether it's the companies that have monopolies over the ports and, you know, the import-export business and the shipping, or whether it's the issues with land here and land values, because it's a beautiful place and people come here and they want to retire here and wealthy people love to buy up beautiful estates here, it drives the price of the land up artificially and it makes it very difficult and unattractive to grow food here because there's no money to be made. And um, I could imagine you've lost a lot of agricultural land on the islands because of that. It is a constant battle. I mean, it's a constant battle. And there's like a recent legislation, I forget the name, it's something like the Public Land Development Corporation. And it's under the guise of putting to work unused land that's just sitting there. And of course, it allows for abuses for corporations, private public partnerships to happen without the public's knowledge. And so much of the time, someone will take a subdivision of land, divide it up into estates and plant a papaya tree on it or put some tea leaf on it or something and say, okay, that's agriculture. So we don't have a lot of that. And the saddest part and the part that I'm involved in as far as the battle to maintain the very fragile ecosystem we have here is the biggest food export we have right now is unfortunately genetically engineered seeds from companies like Monsanto. Oh, wow. And Hawaii is the number one genetically engineered seed exporter in the world. And it's heartbreaking. Most people in Hawaii don't even know that. You tell a local person that and they're like, really? I had no idea. And, you know, it's really sad to see the leaders not learn from the past. For instance, if you look at the whole legacy left by the pineapple and sugarcane, much of it was soil that's useless and water table that's polluted with pesticides. And, you know, it's all documented. You can even go and look on the State of Hawaii websites, the Department of Health, and they talk to you about precautions when you're checking your water in your area, when you buy land or you do business there. And here we are again, spraying gigantic, massive amounts of pesticides daily for doing these GM crops and field testing. They do a lot of field testing here out in the open. Nobody's doing anything about it. Yeah, how did it get that way? I would never expect for Hawaii to be one of the leading exporters in the world, or you said the leading exporter in the world of genetically modified seeds. Well, essentially what happened, and this is what happened around the world, from my understanding, is the mega ag companies like Syngenta and Dow Chemical and Monsanto came in quietly uh, over a decade ago, and they quietly bought up the existing seed companies. 
that were not genetically engineered firms. Hawaii Seed Company, there were different ones that were on Molokai and on Kauai. And they also, they didn't say anything. The signs didn't change. The local people didn't know. And this is all going on. And then people find out eventually, and it's too late. And then, of course, there, you know, I'm not going to go into it right now, but we're actually, my friend is releasing a film on this because one of the biggest landholders in Hawaii is leasing thousands of acres to Monsanto. And we believe that it goes against their charter. They're a private trust chartered to educate and empower Hawaiians, native Hawaiians, and they're leasing large amounts of land to Monsanto. So for me, if I think about the whole charter of nurturing and taking care of the Hawaiian people, I wouldn't think poisoning them should fit into that. But somehow it's justified by the board of directors. So to answer your question, how this happens, it happens under the radar covertly. And people are busy trying to pay their mortgage and take their kids to school. And people don't really know what's going on. I absolutely have to hear a little bit about your aquaponics setup. We, we had a space in our back porch that goes down like some steps. So we had gravity on our side. And my friend Jeff, who's actually visiting in town, he's sitting right here. He researched different things. He's an engineer and a builder and a plumber. And he constructed this system that basically has a series of troughs that start up at the top of a stair. When I say stairs, they're, they're wide stairs. And they go down to our house is built on a hill and they go down the backside of the house. And then at the bottom, there's a 500 gallon tilapia tank. So it's, it's really an ingenious setup because the troughs on the top two troughs, they're also bottom troughs. They're like dual layer troughs. There's a top and the bottom on the top we have grow space. And the very top one, we have gravel beds where we seed. And then after two days or three days, we move and we take the seedlings and the sprouts and we put them into little uh, grow baskets that float on these floating beds and that have inert material to give the sprouts a little uh, structure to grow around. But underneath the two top grow beds, there are these troughs that have water in them. And in them, we can do cycling with smaller fish because we don't want the smaller fish with the big fish. So we can do prawns in there. We can do smaller fish and we can cycle it. So we actually have more than one water space for fish. And it's been incredible. It's, it's like a grocery store. island of Molokai about GMO until one day there was there was a rumor that there was strange things being grown in our cornfields the whole farming community on Molokai was changing and we didn't even know in the 1990s multinational chemical corporations such as DuPont Monsanto Dow they bought up thousands and thousands of small seed companies so now our farmlands were being turned into experimental plots, research plots. They were growing things that we could not eat. We were growing things 
that we didn't even understand. We found that Hawaii had been targeted as a national and international sacrifice area for biotech and genetic modification research. And the largest multinational companies in the world, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, were all here using Hawaiian soils to do the very highly experimental crop production. The science says this is Hawaiian research because they shame put their name, Monsanto. Now these companies call themselves life science companies and they are genetically engineering and patenting the foods of the world beginning with the grain crops that everyone needs to live. Here in Hawaii is ground zero for testing of genetically engineered crops. In the past 10 years or so, we have had here more than 2,000 field tests of experimental genetically engineered crops. And this is more than any other place in the world. Most of these field tests have been food crops like corn, soybeans, but some of them have been tests of experimental crops designed to produce drugs and industrial compounds. None of the corn you can eat, okay? None of the corn you can eat. While advances in technology continue to improve farming productivity and efficiency, it still requires a large amount of two very precious natural resources, water and land. However, there is a sustainable, financially viable food production system that utilizes approximately 2% of the water use of a conventional farm. This system combines fish farming and hydroponics to create a symbiotic environment known as aquaponics. Since ancient times, fish have been associated with fertility, and there are stories of Native Americans helping early pilgrims by telling them to bury fish near their corn crop to help bring nutrients to the soil. Aqua Ranch is where we do aquaponic growing of food. We uh, grow tilapia here, and then we use the aquaculture water to grow plants. So in other words, we feed the fish, the fish feed the plants, and the plant roots clean up the water for the fish. We don't have to discard that fish waste into the environment. The average salmon farm today puts enough raw manure, raw sewage, into the environment to equal a town of 65,000 people. And they do absolutely nothing to clean it up. And they could be using this as food for they plants. Could, they could be. Concentrated fish waste is basically concentrated sewer. It, it, it becomes a pollutant. Uh, we're able to use it as a commodity. In nature, there is no waste. There, every waste product becomes a benefit for another event that happens in nature. And that's what we try to do here. We can ensure that there's no uh, hormonal manipulation done. If I do anything to the plants, it'll affect the fish. And if I do anything to the fish, it'll affect the plants. And so I have to keep a balance.
is The Extra Environmentalist, and you're listening to Makana. And today, we're speaking with him about slack key guitar, Hawaiian culture, our food systems, and social movements. Justin and I just got back from Montreal where they're having these huge student protests based on a tuition increase. They're increasing the student tuitions 75%. Does Hawaii have any kind of history of revolt anyway? Like the student protests in Montreal, they're marching through the streets and saying, we don't want this increase in our tuition. Does Hawaii have any kind of history of that kind of thing that would happen you know, to push GMOs back out? One of the major ones was Koho'olawe. And I, you know, I'm not aware as to when the government and the military acquired Koholawe first, but I, I believe it was sometime around World War II. It may have been prior. But they acquired one of our islands, Koholawe, and they used it for bombing practice for many, many decades. And in fact, it's, it's very sad because in that they ended up cracking the water table. And when you crack the water table, the fresh water supply diminishes. And so it really changed the whole landscape of the island and made it very desolate. But there were a few amazing, powerful Hawaiian activists, and one of them is very famous. His name is George Helm. I'm good friends with his family from Molokai, and he was also a famous Hawaiian singer. And he led a movement to end the bombing of Koho'olawe, and he was, along with some of his other friends, doing some hardcore activism and protesting, and at some point... And this happened many years ago. He was supposedly lost at sea and never to be found again. The good news is that there were so much support by the people of Hawaii that eventually, I think in the early 90s, Koholawe was returned to the state of Hawaii and the people of Hawaii. And now I'm not sure exactly what organization is managing it, but there's no more bombing and there are a lot of cleanup and restoration going on on the island. So that's one example of people power doing a lot in terms of policy here. There are other things, but Hawaii is an interesting place in terms of activism because there are obviously different demographics here. And the climate here and the vibe here is so laid back. And I mean, it's so beautiful and so wonderful. It's not cold. It's not a big city. You know, it's like everywhere you look, you're in paradise that it kind of plays out differently than in the major cities here. I was wondering, you were mentioning earlier about traditional language schools starting to form, and you were talking about how that traditional language also helps to embody a way of thinking. And I'm wondering if there's a way of thinking that is traditional to the culture and is traditional to the island that Hawaii has to share to the world at this particular moment in history. Oh, yes, for sure. I would start with what I said earlier with the the point of view of aloha. I have a saying, and it goes, giving never leaves one with less. And... When you experience being in the presence of a kupuna, that's one of the elders of Hawaii, and we call them olu olu, means they're so comforting in their presence, they're so pleasant to be with. This really affects you, and I grew up around this. And the whole idea of acquiring more and competition, I'm a person who, I understand that competition is part of nature, and I accept that, and I don't have a qualm with competition itself. But competition without a value system behind it, that's where we have problems. And so in looking at the cultural heritage of Hawaii, I would say that what it has to offer is a sense of ohana, which is family, which is community, 
a sense of caring for the well-being of the other person and knowing that because we live on this island, we have limited resource. We're all tied in together. If I don't do well, it affects you. If you don't do well, it affects me. But it doesn't even come from that sense of survival. It comes from a sense of accepting that we are family, that we need to take care of each other. And this attitude goes so far, it's revolutionary. And this is the core of being Hawaiian, I believe, is that sense of ohana, that sense of giving and being concerned with the well-being of those around you. And I think that's what's missing when we talk about capitalism versus socialism and all these systems. No system has any solution to offer humanity without aloha, without love, without the recognition that we're all interconnected. We need to be aware of how our actions affect others and understand that we are the other person. I had a question for you. When you came in contact with mainland U.S. themes, mainland U.S. culture for the first time, and having grown up in Hawaii, what was it like for you to interact with these mainland value systems with the capitalist culture in the raw? What was it like for you? Well, to be clear, it's here as well. It's here in Hawaii. And I, I didn't have to go to the mainland to interface with it. And I had to first learn how to survive in it and learn not to become a victim in it. That was my first job without losing my essence. And if when I look at my history, I'm very thankful in my music career, because that's the field that I'm in. I always made choices that were based on my artistic values and not on a sense of monetary gain, because I knew the monetary aspect would reflect me being in harmony with myself. But I witnessed around me a sense of it's a system that really doesn't allow a person who grows up in this system to really discover and explore their true potential because immediately they're saddled with this harness of what are you going to be and how are you going to generate value. But the value isn't real value. It's a fictitious value. So it permeates everywhere. And the way that I deal with it now is one of the things I do is I do a, I constantly do community service. I constantly use my music as a gift to inspire people, and I give it away as much as I can. And the other thing is I started growing my own food, and I started to do that because I started to look at how can I add value here and get out of this fictitious, monopolized system of so-called value, which is the money system, and get into a system of real value. And so what we talk about real value, we look at what is of real value. Land is of real value because that's where life comes from. Food is of real value. Natural resources are of real value. Relationships, people are of real value. Health is of real value. Energy is of real value. All of these things that we have direct access to if we're willing to go out of our comfort zone. We don't need a corporation or someone else to provide them for us. We can actually access them ourselves. We can build community. We can access the sun. We can access the soil. We can do all these things, but the system has worked to remove us and put a fictitious layer of necessity in between us and real value. And I don't even like to say it's just corporations. Corporation is just a, an entity that's on a piece of paper. It's really a mentality. It's a mentality of control. And so it's really about freedom and saying, no one else is going to give me freedom. I need to create that for myself. And living in Hawaii, the obvious choice for me was to start growing food. It's like I have a beautiful climate here. I have soil and I'm going to start doing it. 
Do you think that's the first pathway forward in building this autonomy and starting to embrace these traditional values that are so antithetical to traditional capitalist values, or at least corporate capitalist values, uh, starting to grow your own food and learning about the food system? I would recommend that as the absolute first baby step is grow something because and I'll give you a bunch of reasons why number one because we're about to hit major food shortages in the next two years and you can look up that yourself number two there is a huge monopoly on food and not only is that bad from a health perspective it's also bad from an economic perspective the prices are being manipulated the food that is affordable is bad for you because we subsidize genetically engineered food it's artificially priced and people who can't afford to eat organic food are getting screwed. Growing your own food empowers you psychologically. Growing your own food empowers you economically. Growing your own food immunizes you from the supply and demand chain. It helps you to create real abundance. It gives you something to barter with and of real value that you can help others with. It's healthy for kids. It's the healthiest thing you can do for your body. So there are a myriad of reasons to do it. And I'm a very busy guy, but I create time to do it. But I'd like to say I'm not an anti-capitalist, and I just want to be clear about that. I'm not an ist anything. I'm about community. I'm not I'm I'm totally not for socialism either. I, I don't want any of those systems at all. I don't want a top-down system. What I want is local movement. I want communities to wake up and free themselves from the dependence on the supply and demand chain so that they create their microeconomies. I want things of real value that a monopoly cannot determine its value to the rest of the world used as mediums of exchange whether it's tarot or it's trade services or whatever. It's really about control and monopoly. I want to be clear about that. This is what is destroying society and creating massive economic inequity. It's not capitalism. It's not socialism. It's not any of these systems. It's the control that a few people exude over the value of our money and the control that the government allows a few corporations over our food, our medicine, the energy and everything else we need to live. Was it this way of thinking, this process that got you started in writing the song We Are the Many and eventually resulted in you playing that uh, state dinner where President Obama was there? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I mean, actually, I've, for many years, I've been writing songs about society and economics and things of a political nature. And, and you know, I, I, when we talk about politics, I always like to tell people there's no such thing as politics. Forget it exists. All there is is your life and other people making decisions that affect your life. And if you look at it that way, then you can't just shuck it off in your mind because do you really want other people you don't know deciding about the things that you need to live? That's not a comfortable, no. empowered position to be in. No, but, that but so many people do let other people decide how they want their lives to be lived. I mean, we so many people look to the media, look to you know the president, look to politicians as demonstrators of the culture that they want to live. They want to be millionaires. They want to live with these high lifestyles. How do you get people to see the basic simplicity of the lifestyle that you're talking about, that you don't need to follow anybody to be happy, that you need to look, just look inside yourself? I agree with that. But, you know, because I really, truly believe in freedom, I would never try to say that this one lifestyle is more important. I have nothing against people flying in jets and being wealthy or people who want to live with no money and just live in a shack. I have no opinion of that. That's your free choice. But the path we're on is going to lead to a lot of suffering. Right now, 
We're all dependent on a supply and demand chain that is controlled by a few companies. If anything happens, we're screwed. So I don't like, regardless of what level or lifestyle I'm going to live at, even if I'm a millionaire, I should still have food growing on my property and have some supply of food because you can't go buy food when the store is empty. From my perspective, it's about being healthy. I mean, look at Steve Jobs. You know, he died. All that money, how did that help him? Removing yourself from dependence on the pharmaceutical companies, removing yourself from dependence on the surgeries, removing yourself from dependence on the food chemical companies. This is freedom. To me, I've decided for myself that the greatest, greatest luxury is walking out into my garden, picking food grown from healthy soil without chemicals taking it into my kitchen, cooking with good oils that aren't going to cause me disease, and eating that food with the people I love. That is so epic. I'm so wealthy because I do that. And I think it's cool. And so I'm trying to get people to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're right there with you. I mentioned just a moment ago about playing at that state dinner with Obama. What was that like? Can you walk us through what it was like to be there in that situation and to start playing uh, a song about these decentralized values that you were just discussing? Sure. I had been invited to play at the White House back in 2009, and I accepted the invitation. And I was again invited by the Obamas to perform at the APEC World Leaders Dinner. And now the APEC is similar to NAFTA, say, so-called free trade agreement. It's a conference of Pacific Rim nations, mostly. So there were about 20 world leaders at this dinner. And I played for two and a half hours, and so there were twenty. Oh, there were about forty people in the room, and myself, and my guitar tech, and the sound guy, and that was it. And then on the outskirts of the room, because it was kind of like a pavilion with open walls and a roof, in the bushes, in the dark, there were Secret Service and Marines all around. So I started out my performance with slack key guitar, and I played really about an hour or so of beautiful Hawaiian music and whatnot, and. I had just two weeks prior written this song, We Are The Many, which you can see on YouTube, and consequentially done a video for it and put it up the day before I was to play the APEC dinner. And my fans saw it and a bunch of them were like, you better play this song at the dinner. Did you write this for that? You know, it was just a timing thing. It just, it was like providential. It just was perfect timing. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to play it because, you know, I was like, well, I don't know if it's appropriate. And, you know, it's kind of a, a big deal to play that there. And so I thought about it and I was a little scared to do it. But about halfway through the performance, I started to get calm from the slack key and playing there and I felt comfortable. And so I, I had been given a shirt by a friend that he made and it said Occupy with Aloha. It was just kind of a funny statement that actually has a lot of meaning to it. On one hand, of course, there's the whole Occupy movement. But on another hand, it was my message to them because APEC was essentially occupying Hawaii. It was like lockdown. I mean, I was in the highest secure place in America at that point and seven mile radius of security checks. And it was really disturbing to our way of life here. And there were other things that happened. My Hanai family, who is like a second family to me, their, one of their son's best friends was murdered by an agent who was here on security detail for the president. Murdered in cold blood when he was off duty and drunk. And wow. 
you know, it, it really disrupted us. I mean, there was like all this money spent on weapons that could only be used against civilians. And the, I mean, since World War II, you haven't seen the beach look like this, where it was like barbed wire and nobody allowed on the beach. I mean, it was really sad. These people love their war. They think they're so important, you know, and they use our money to like against us as a violence. I'm totally against it. So I was in there and 300 of my friends were outside seven miles away protesting. And I thought to myself, you know, why not? This is what Akua, Akua is what we call God, Akua is calling me to do. I felt that. But I didn't want to be disrespectful. I didn't want to take away from the effort that the people who planned the dinner had done. I'm not like that. I don't like to say, hey, I'm more important than you. I just wanted to do it in a very subtle way. So I unbuttoned my shirt at some point, my jacket, and I revealed Occupy with Aloha. And I quietly went into the song. And I played it straight through and my heart was racing and I didn't get kicked out. And I had reactions from some of the world leaders. And fortunately, Obama, who was in charge of the dinner, you know, he was the host, was busy talking. And if he had been listening, I think that he would have signaled to his people to have me stop. But because him and his wife were busy engaged in conversation and the other tables were kind of just sitting there. I was able to play it and so I went back into some instrumentals and finally I decided I got a lot of courage and I decided to play it again and I went into a really long version and I just kept playing and switching verses and doing the choruses and I played it for about wow. 40 minutes and it <laughs> wow. was wow that's, it was, that's I mean, incredibly ballsy it was a I mean for those of you who haven't heard the song you know it's lyrics like from underneath the vestiture of law the lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw, and until they are purged, we won't withdraw. And, you know, you enforce your monopolies with guns. And and so everyone around you was listening to it, and they were just, like, staring at you like, oh, my goodness, he's saying this. I mean, <laughs> it was, I mean, it really was comical at the time. You know, it was just like, okay, there's a reason why I just wrote this song, and I'm here. And so anyway, I finished my performance, and the staff who was running the event was not in the room. So they would, every time they would come in just to see if everything was okay, I would back off. And so at the end, they came in and they're like, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Oh, thank you. And, and I, I mean, I did play for free and give them my music. And it was wonderful. I created beautiful background music for them. And so then we took the video of it and we put out a press release. And there were all of the news from around the world because all the leaders were there. And there was nothing going on but really our story. So our story got picked up and it became like the number one story on Yahoo for two days. And it went really big. It went worldwide. And consequentially... I received thousands and thousands of, of emails and letters, and it really, really, really inspired a lot of people. And of course, it pissed off a couple of people, too. Yeah, that's incredible. And so no one stood up in the middle of the performance and was like, what is he saying up there? Well, that's the beauty of, you know, I, I look at everything in life as poetry. You have a room full of world leaders, and this guy singing these words that are obviously calling them out. And nobody's got the balls to say anything about it. They're basically following the lead of someone else. And that's what we have in society is we don't really have leaders. We have followers. You know, and I had dinner after that with the president of French Polynesia of Tahiti. And when I sat down to dinner with the cabinet and we had a bunch of friends there, they didn't know who I was. And somehow someone whispered, oh, that's the guy who sang at APEC. And they gave me an ovation. And then the president stood up and he said, you know, you have great courage for doing this. You know, he said, for doing this in the presence of the world leaders. And I said to him, and this is the president of Tahiti, who is an uh, amazing guy. He doesn't follow the, the line that most presidents do. And I said, you know, they are not world leaders. They're followers of a corporate agenda. You are a leader. And what I learned through the whole thing is we're all here to serve. 
we come here and we get this body that gives us data through these five senses and it's so real it's so real and some people don't want to be told it's not real and that's fine that's cool it's all G but if you're suffering the way to alleviate suffering is to understand the true nature and the true nature is that the senses only give you a small spectrum of all the data coming at you and underneath that you are God you are emanating life you are the core of life is inside of you as it is inside of the tree as it's inside of the Sun it's inside of you and we're all part of this one swaying being as Rumi says and so for me my humble contribution is to use my music to inspire others because as long as we allow fear to control us as long as we're afraid of the consequences what are people gonna think what are they gonna say and that's really how people are controlled it's not getting afraid of even being hurt it's what are other people gonna think what are my peers gonna say about me don't worry don't worry you be the leader Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Nine Pacific leaders today reached broad agreement to work towards a free trade zone significantly bigger than the European Union. Chief political correspondent Mark Simkin reports from the APEC summit in Honolulu. Nine leaders have agreed on the framework for a landmark free trade pact and they hope to seal the deal next year. It is an ambitious goal, but uh, we are optimistic that we can get it done. The Trans-Pacific Partnership will encompass the world's biggest economy and a communist country. Even Japan wants in, despite its 780% duty on rice. Apex already having an impact on one industry, Honolulu's tourist trade. The security suffocating. Snipers on rooftops, soldiers on the streets, police on the water. It's like a police state. We there are people with machine guns. I had today. to put my coffee cup through a metal detector today. This is what happens when the president comes to town. Part of Waikiki Beach is off limits. The streets are choked. The visitors furious. It's like a demilitarized zone. It's like there's, they've been putting up the fence all week and they've just cordoned off the Holikoa area here. We have an office in Kabul and in Baghdad. In the international zone and one in the green zone in, in Baghdad and it's easier to get in and out of there. Aloha. Aloha. On behalf of Michelle and myself, welcome to Hawaii. And on behalf of the American people, welcome to the United States. We have a busy day ahead of us tomorrow, and we have a luau tonight, including hula dancing, so I want to be brief. So far, though, the summit hasn't gone entirely according to plan. 
Last night during the gala dinner, a Hawaiian guitarist used the spotlight to draw attention, well, to a different agenda. The guitarist Makana opened his suit jacket to reveal a t-shirt that reads, Occupy with Aloha, an apparent show of support for the Occupy movements unfolding across the U.S. and other parts of the world. He also sang a protest ballad instead of just strumming his guitar for background music. Well, as was expected, Makana comes to us now live from Honolulu. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, you're wearing the t-shirt, you've got the guitar. But tell me, first of all, what were you thinking? I mean, why did you do it? I think the real question is, why wouldn't I have done it? It felt like the right song to sing. I wrote it with the intention of people in power hearing it. And then eventually I got enough courage to go into it for an extended period of time. And I ended my show with the line, the bidding of the many, not the few. I sang it about 50 times in different ways for them to hear. <laughs> uh, you're with us today. Are you in any kind of trouble at all? I hope not. Why? I was just singing. If, if I'm in trouble for singing, we have major problems. Fair enough. Makana, live from Honolulu. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, quite a performance. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the others in the Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you. Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Makana, slacky guitar master and Hawaiian cultural historian. I wanted to also plug your your music. I think what would be really neat is if we could have you like walk us through a little bit about what makes Slack guitar unique. Uh, maybe even if you had a guitar with you, you could kind of like play a few things that made it sound unique, and then we can ask you where people can find this music if they want to listen to more. Sure. Um, just pulled out a guitar. It's totally out of tune. So I'm gonna tune to a open G tuning. Hawaiians call this tarot patch. And obviously, you know, with slack key, the first whole point is to free up your hand so that you can alter the sound. So when I play this open, I'm not fretting the guitar at all. It's just my hand's not touching it. It's already a G chord. So I can use my fretting hand, my left hand, to alter the sound. So I'm not stuck holding a chord. That way I can do rhythm and lead at the same time. And so what I'll do with my picking hand is my thumb will get an alternating bass line like... that I'll weave a melody like this. And then I'll play them at the same time.
that was fantastic thank you mahalo yeah incredible that sounded even amazing over skype which i'm sure took it down a few notches i couldn't even imagine what it sounded like live well if you guys like slack key you can hear all of my music at my website makana music.com and that's m-a-k-a-n-a music makana music.com all right are you are you going to be touring anywhere can people see any of your shows uh, the tour schedule's on there, and I know it's always hard to leave Hawaii, so I don't tour a lot. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, I, I don't think I'd want to leave either. I, yeah, who'd I, want to leave Hawaii to go somewhere else? <laughs> but I am uh, working on a couple new records right now with a lot of music. I've actually written a whole body of work on the piano, too, and lots of new songs. And my YouTube link is on the website as well, and you can hear We Are The Many and a bunch of the Slacky music as well. And that wraps up our conversation with Makana about Hawaiian cultural history, the slack key guitar, and you were just serenaded by the beautiful sounds of his guitar over Skype. It did sound beautiful, Justin. But, you know, we have we are at the at the bay and the mercy of the Skype connection, which is connecting us to a person who is out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. And we can't really complain about the fact that we were able to talk to him at all. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. But yes, I, it was a little bit sad that we didn't get to hear the full beauty of his music. But of course, he has many, many records and albums available for us to, to partake in his music that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And you heard some of his music throughout the episode and we'll provide listings on the website if you're interested in checking out the names of those specific songs. And I thought it was really interesting when we were talking to Makana about his plans for advancing the techniques of the slack key guitar because there's very few people in the world that actually know how to play it and he was saying that what he really wants to do is build an audience that appreciates the slack key guitar and to take that forward so that way more and more people want to learn about it and be involved in it and that's really one of the ideas behind what we're trying to do with the extra environmentalist and ideas of humans living on this planet and sustainability. That's right, Justin. Just as our podcast is our vehicle for transmitting this information and these ideas all around the world, Makani uses his slacky guitar to do the same exact thing. He uses poetry and, and music to bring these ideas and these themes into into the world. And 
using that vehicle, he's able to reach a very, very large amount of people and, and to, to bring about change in the world. And that led him to be able to play for presidents, world leaders at the Apex Summit. And when his time came, he had the courage because of his deep inner journey as well to be able to have the courage to play a song like that at uh, world leader summit yeah Talking can you imagine that. Yeah. that would be scary sitting in front of these all these world leaders and, and br- breaking out a protest song <laughs> i know and you know you, you heard the lyrics during the episode and you heard him talking about the lyrics and it's just saying you know how bankrupt morally our governments are and how the world is starting to rise up against them because everybody's realizing that you know republicans and democrats and party politics aren't serving them the whole thing is bankrupt and that's a really powerful message to deliver to world leaders and even more so he didn't like we do you know hide behind a microphone and talk and say these things but he actually wrote a creative piece like a song and that had just been put together by him and then played it in front of world leaders for one of the first times it was ever heard in public And he didn't even just play it for three minutes, for five minutes, for 10 minutes. He played for 45 minutes. It's like McKenna said, which I thought was incredibly poignant, that all the world leaders are supposedly world leaders, but they're just followers as well. And because no one had the courage to stand up and say, hey, what is that guy playing? Why is he saying those things about governments? It really demonstrates that all these guys are more than anything else just followers of the neoliberal paradigm like we've talked about on our show, followers of a broken economic paradigm, and people who are really just trying to lasso people and systems into control that they really don't have. And there's tons and tons of information about conspiracies and many different rabbit holes you can go down into that extent. And I'm sure that there's some truth to some of those things and perhaps many of those things. And I think that when you focus on all of those different secret cabals trying to control the world, really, they are not able to control the world. And you really see the systemic ability of control breaking down through the euro crisis through so many of the crises of the modern world and even if a government is successful in controlling its population for a particular period of time with military rule they're going to face some very serious ecological constraints like the ones we've talked about on our show and so that whole ideology of infinite control is breaking down itself and that's one thing that it was great to hear about from Makana just how much of a follower all of these world leaders truly are now justin would you rather a world where people were in control and it was like a large conspiracy where people knew what was going on they were manipulating the system or would you rather a world where everybody was just kind of reacting as we go along well i don't know if i would i would rather either one i think that the situation that we have right now is really a combination of all of all of the above you know where all of these random events and processes are playing out and they're stunningly complex and they're set into motion by all of these historical processes like we talked about with Makana about the historical processes that were occurring in Hawaii I think that of course there's groups of people and individual people who collaborate and try to pull things and direct things in certain ways and so you know you think of all of the seven billion people on the planet and all of these different groups that wield money and power and how they're trying to influence things and then they're all conflicting with each other and it's just an unbelievably complex process and that's some of the complex processes that we try to draw attention to on the extra environmentalist 
And what was really interesting to me is the ways that which the culture of Hawaii was able to adapt culturally. And like Makana was saying, there was a creative and destructive element to all of those changes. And so every single culture that came in and influenced the traditional culture, there was something lost, but there was also something gained. And I think it was really fascinating to see how quick these cultural changes could occur. And it really gets me thinking about the kind of cultural changes that we need in order to have a society that's in harmony with the ecological processes. That's right. And seeing those examples of quick transformations, of transitions into new and different ways of thinking kind of gives me hope because it's we're not even that far away from a new kind of transition into something new. It's just, it's just a hop and a skip and a cultural diffusion away, especially now with our interconnected world. Now that you have this kind of mass connectivity that just takes over the whole planet and, and has, has interconnected us in such a tight-knit way, this kind of cultural diffusion and cultural integration can take place at unprecedented speeds. And so even though there are some positive aspects that we're all aiming for with cultural change, that process of cultural change does not come without its casualties and without its pain. And as the history of Hawaii, or essentially any story of contact between any other culture and another culture that comes with the mindset of a colonizer, there are casualties, there are diseases that are spread, as when the Spanish came to the New World, and there's tremendous casualties. And so I really find in many ways the culture of Hawaii to be very inspiring in the ways that we, they were able to adapt but that in no way should overlook the terrible pain and the cultural heritage that was also lost in the process. There is such a lot of pain that comes along with cultural change, but there is always always a bright side to every kind of change that happens, even when it's very painful and even when it means that you have to turn your back on so much that your culture has been a part of in the past. And we see that now with all of the economic turmoil in the world, and it's really rooted deeply in flawed economic thinking. It's rooted in flawed cultural thinking and understanding that it really just isn't a quick fix. It really isn't a bailout fund that's going to make sure that Spain's banks make it through another week or something like that. Those are just little patches on problems. And even just putting a little patch on some economic rationale is not going to fix the whole problem. It's going to take something much deeper than that that takes a very long time. And as in the story of Hawaii, going to be a lot of suffering, but there's going to be a lot of bright spots towards something new. I was really fascinated by the ways that the islanders of Hawaii were instituting a penalty of death even for misuse of soil and misuse of resources on the island. And that's unbelievable to see how the culture went from that to now being what is shockingly, and I had no idea that the island of Hawaii is the number one exporter of GMO seeds, of genetically modified seeds. That's absolutely stunning. That is wild. For especially for a place who is just so isolated, I, I suppose that when you live in a microcosm like that, you can just kind of design genes, you can design plants that just have no interaction with the outside world. They don't have to worry about incoming other genes that it's just going to mess with the, the GMO style plants that are going on there. I mean, I have no expertise in genetically modified organisms, but that would seem to make sense is that because it's so isolated, you're going to minimize the amount of interference that perhaps those gene pools would have. And that could be one of the reasons why so many genetically modified organisms are grown in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of that speed of cultural change, recently here in Vancouver, 
the author of the book, The Four Global Truths, Darren Durda was in town and he has been studying different traditions around the world, specifically Buddhism, but also talking about this greater transition that our species is going through. And so I had the opportunity to sit down with him for a few minutes here in Vancouver to talk about some of those things and the ways in which he imagines that we can start living in an interconnected way in our communities and with our ecology. Because of the fact that we have this weird capacity for conscious choice, there's always a point at which we can kind of turn it around. So even in our in our own lives, you know, we see we see that we have this capacity to um, to awaken, turn things around. And um, I do think that we have this capacity as a species as well. And that not only can we engage this, we must engage this. So, you know, most of us we need to be experiencing some kind of crisis normally for us before we really move forward. But uh, this is what's happening on the collective level is that we're in this period of crisis that is urging us or inviting us to uh, fuller expression of, of what we are instead of just these unconscious little machines that have these desires, some of which are falsely created and running around satisfying these desires. You know, there's more to our lives than that. In Buddhism, I'm wondering what it is, some of the core things that Buddhism has to contribute to us at this time when there's so many economic and ecological issues? What are some of the core things that Buddhism that can really teach us? Uh, well, the core of all the Buddhist traditions, which really is the kind of the core of every spiritual, wise spiritual tradition, is, is the balance between wisdom and compassion. So for me, right away, there emerges this something in Buddhism that's not only important, but it's central. I would say it's important in all religions, but it's central to the, to the Buddhist teachings that we develop our heart capacities as well as our awakening. To awaken is to awaken fully in our heart and our mind. In, in Buddhism, it's the same word, heart and mind. It's the same word, citta. There's no distinction made between the heart and the mind. It's the knowing faculty of our being. The other thing that I think is really beautiful about Buddhism, some of its other core teachings include this you know, sense of interconnection, interconnectivity, interbeing, however you want to call it, the sense that nothing can exist by itself without the inclusion of every other thing in the universe. You know, it's one one system integrally bound together all of its different components. And even the fact that we perceive different components is a kind of delusion of ours that, you know, that we even, uh, we tend to think of things as being separate, but that nothing can exist without other things. So, of course, ecologically, this is a very important message just to know that, you know, whatever we're doing to the earth, we're doing to ourselves, ultimately, it's going to come back to us. Whatever we harm we're inflicting to the earth is gonna we're starting to see it now and just very you know cancer rates keep going up you name it i mean just different diseases that we're coming across seeing more frequently in among humans is just a sign that finally a lot of these things that we thought would never affect us because we thought we were separate from the natural world are now um, reminding us that we are indeed not separate the other thing that i would say that's wonderful about Buddhism is that it's a tradition or a set of traditions that's very works very well for our times because they're, we live in a mostly scientific paradigm and people are generally pretty skeptical. And, and Buddhism says that's great, that's awesome. You know, question everything, question Buddhism itself. Do not buy into the system just because the Buddha said so. You know, test it out for yourself and do it. You know, and etasiko is the the term he used. Come see for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't make you enlightened, but I can tell you these things that I did, and if you try them earnestly, you know, you'll find 
some really uh, amazing things happening. So it's it's a very self-directed and self-reliant kind of religion. I think we we as modern people kind of need something like that. You know, we're we're not very comfortable. Most of us just kind of handing our life over to some higher force. You know, it can be appropriate at times, but I think we all need something more tangible. And Buddhism has this as well. This kind of practice for me, it's a uh, a daily meditation practice that just grounds me in, in uh, something that has very tangible results. You know, it's not, I don't do Buddhism because I have faith in Buddhism. I do, I do Buddhism because I see the results very directly every single day. You know, they're very tangible, they're very apparent, they're not something mysterious at all. They're a sense of spaciousness and perspective that I wouldn't otherwise have if I didn't have these, these tools. So I think there's something about that. Even atheists, most of them would feel perfectly at home in Buddhism because there's no demand for some kind of belief in God or even mm-hmm. certainly not any kind of subservience to an outside force of any kind. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a very self-empowering kind of religion and that's uh, a tradi- set of traditions and that's, for me, something I, I really like about it. But I would say mostly it has to do with this heart-mind connection that I think we've lost a great deal of in our, in our um, culture. We, we're such a mind-oriented mm-hmm. brain rational mind kind of oriented culture that right off the bat talk about the importance of cultivating heartfulness as well as mindfulness that is already profound I think for me and so you mentioned the scientific culture that we live in and one of the things that so many different fields of science have been discovering especially over the last two decades or so has been the level of interconnection between our species and so many different ecological processes and a lot of people even though there seems to be kind of a collective sense of denial more and more people are waking up to this kind of they can't quite put their finger on it many of them this kind of unease and so people are wanting to be involved in that interconnection and i'm wondering how you see people start living that interconnected life how can they start cultivating that in their own in their own mind and in their mm. community well that's a very very good question um, and it's an important one uh, and it's good because it's a good question I say that because I'm not entirely sure myself but I, I don't know if anyone knows <laughs> if anyone knows answer. yes if they, they they will certainly be writing some some very famous books right now <laughs> if they were if they really definitively yeah. knew but um, what you're touching upon something very important which is how to make this shift from our sense of interconnection that we have intuitively, we feel this, we know this, and we even read about it in, as you say, in scientific literature or biological literature and science in general, uh, is kind of stumbling across these realizations. But yet, as you say, we don't live, we don't fully live it. We, we don't cultivate that awareness all mm-hmm. the time. We tend to retreat into our private selves quite a bit in our culture. And in fact, that's highly encouraged, you know, to be isolated and um, you get your sense of connection through the TV or you get it through Facebook. There's something to be said about cultivating actual community, non-virtual community. So, I mean, that's certainly something I would recommend to everyone is just find the people that, that you love and that love you and support you and spend actual time with them as much as possible, like in the same space, not just emailing each other and, you know, but organize potlucks or, or gift circles or days in the park or um, dance parties or whatever they are to just really keep a kind of sense of knowing who your allies are and who um, who your friends are and keeping them keeping them close so uh, this this sense of community helps of course to foster that connection to the larger community too mm-hmm. you know knowing that um, that community doesn't end there but it just ripples on to infinitely to eventually encompass all humans and so but it's a start it's a kind of warm-up 
in some way to, you know, to feel, because ultimately it's just love, really, we're talking about. You know, we're just talking about this feeling in the heart that knows I'm enough because I don't stop here. You're part of me, I'm part of you, so on and so on, you know. And that is a particular kind of feeling in the heart that's a feeling of security and of strength and of knowing. It's the kind of the opposite of the, the delusions that we normally have of, of not knowing and of feeling separated instead of interconnected. So it, it ultimately does come down to a feeling, and it's one that we can cultivate partly through this forming of communities. What would your vision of a culture that embraced this uh, this feeling of interconnectedness look like, let's say if it was implemented where you live in San Francisco, what, what would your community look like if that uh, was what the culture started to become? Well, that would be a tremendous shift, wouldn't it? I would say that the models are already emerging, so you know we don't have to really look that far because we're already seeing um, what it looks like. You know, transition towns and other movements, new structures that are popping up are kind of showing us and actually, this is how people should live. In my fantasy world, it looks a little bit more like Burning Man, but that's just me, you know. Just this open community where people do what they want with this general sense of safety, and, and even if not safety, the sense that other people are looking out for them, mm-hmm. that other people have got their back if something goes wrong, a sense of a deep sense of trust, um, and that includes trust of how we, not just how we are physically, but how we interact with one another in terms of our transactions, you know more gifting and more sharing than uh, personal possession and and more things held in common amongst big groups, you know, rather than just everyone having one of everything, that kind of thing. So it's already emerging this this sense of local over international or national, you know, just keeping things small and simple. You know, there's some kind of uh, something intrinsic to the human being where there's this almost natural desire to go back to how we lived in the past, which was much more communally and where indigenous groups still live in, the, in this uh, communal sphere, you know. And there's all this evidence that early humans, you know, normally the, the tribe, the group, usually wasn't bigger than 40 or 50. That's about how much neural activity we can devote to. That's about how many real friends and real connections we can have. You know, beyond that, they just start to sort of uh, law of diminishing returns, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have 500 600, 800 Facebook friends is cool, but like, how many of those people do you really, really know? Probably about 40 or 50 at the most, you know? More like 20, 30 that you really know. Just knowing that, like, that's part of our nature, and I think that's that's the kind of, those are the kind of communities that we're, we're going to see emerging more and more, just like little tribes, and hopefully there'll be some system among these tribes to communicate and share information and live together, but, mm-hmm. but primarily living in these relatively small, you know, self- contained in a way Mm -hmm. kind of units but uh what it actually looks like on a day-to-day basis you know it's anybody's guess it could be i like to think that it's really exciting and could look like burning man yeah maybe it will and so how can people find your writings find uh things things that you're doing um let's see i write a lot for reality sandwich elephant journal occasionally but um the uh book of course is my main thing these days the four global truths Uh, it's at the four global truths.com and um, there's a blog that's attached to that and all that kind of stuff. So if people want to sign up for a uh, newsletter mailing that I periodically give out just to kind of give little updates, nothing overwhelming, maybe once every two two months or something like that, yeah, I would love to be connected to those people out there who are um, wanting to live, live the new story. Oh, heartache and rage Come sit us free 
So I really liked what Darren had to say about cultivating that non-virtual community. And he was talking about how so many of our interactions today are through online means like Twitter, like Facebook. And we've been building these virtual communities around us. But if we're not reinforcing those with physical communities, then we're really losing out on one of the most important aspects of the current transition that we're going through. Because as Nicole Foss mentioned in her episode about hard times, what gets you through hard times is a community and people who care about you and people who can work together. And like Darren was saying, you know, get together and throw a dance party, get together and plan a potluck or just plan something with groups of people that you share values with and that you can have a good time with because really at the end of the day as this industrial economy no longer serves our needs we're going to be able to find out that all of the needs that we had weren't even encapsulated in the design of the industrial economy itself and we can start meeting those needs for social integration and for community in better and more fulfilling ways than ever before. It's super easy to get caught up with the online world and I know I get caught up in the online world all the time. I mean, this whole project that Justin and I work on is built in the online world. So every time I'm online, there's someone that wants to interact with me, who wants to send me an email, who wants to talk about a different kind of topic. Justin and I have many, many conversations over the online mediums. We interact with hundreds of people using Facebook and over Twitter and over email. These are all really, really great ways to connect with people over long distance. But like Justin says, and like Darren says, it's essential to have that physical connection because as much as you connect with people over the internet and as much as you connect with people over digital mediums and social networks, there's just some kind of intangible feeling of having somebody there to see the body language, to see the eye contact, to have the eye contact. It's just essential to being human. And you can't forget that you are human no matter how many digital devices that you have, no matter how many screens that you have in your life, no matter how fast you can type with your thumbs, you still are a human. And there's a whole lot of biology that, that goes into what it means to be human. And interactions with people in your community, physical interactions with people in your community are essential to what it means to be human. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of the community that I'm in here in Vancouver with such a robust Transition Towns initiative, the Village Vancouver initiative. And there's actually a grant process here in the city for people to propose and get funded for neighborhood projects, for example, getting honeybees in their backyard, expanding community gardens. And I actually was able to get a grant recently to do a permaculture blitz of my front yard, and we're going to have a medicinal permaculture garden. No and, way. Yeah, and a big potluck and get, you know, 20 or so people together. And cool. We've got a what are you going to plant? Designer. Not exactly sure yet. It's coming up at the end of the month, so I need to get planning right away so we can order those plants. But you know, this process came about because different organizations in the city got together and identified these goals and citizens went in there and talked to their community organizations and said, these are the things that are important for us. And now we're able to do this and build our local food capacity just simply because so many amazing people have been working on these issues in this area for so long. That sounds excellent. I'm really excited about that. My father actually just got some bees in his backyard. So he has been pollinating all the plants that my mom grows in her garden, as well as all the plants within a two mile radius, because that's how far these little Italian bees fly. It's pretty incredible. They swarm on the outside of the hive when it gets really hot outside, and it's called bearding, and they're just flapping their wings and buzzing and trying to keep themselves cool. It's very interesting, these bees. I'm excited to have some tasty honey in the future. 
Yeah, very cool. And just like honeybees making honey in their hives, we here at the Extra Environmentalists have been receiving a whole lot of honey from our listeners in the form of donations and voicemails and emails. We're really fortunate to have you guys as our beehive pumping out that honey for us so that we can keep this hive going. The donations that everybody sends in are extremely appreciated, and we're adding that into the funding that we have for this show to keep growing the ability to do things. For example, our listener donations made it possible for us to go to the Montreal Degrowth Conference and shoot some video interviews with many people, which have just been getting thousands and thousands of views on Vimeo, which has been stunning since we just started the Vimeo page, what was it, two and a half weeks ago, Seth? Yeah, we uploaded our first video just under three weeks ago, and it has taken off incredibly. Out of 11 videos, we have several thousand views of all of them. That's incredible. That's that's just everybody sharing with their friends, everybody p- passing these links on to people, posting on their blog, posting on other people's websites. This is exactly the way that these ideas are spread virally through friends and through contacts with one another, passing these things along. And it's, it's just amazing to see how fast it grows. Actually, 3,000 was in the last week. And so these are the kinds of videos that we want to produce in the future. And so thanks for all our previous donators for making it happen. And also thanks for the people who've donated to the show recently who will also be receiving some amazing stickers that our listener Kevin in San Diego printed out for us along with some T-shirts. And so Matt in New Paltz, New York, he sent us a note and said that he spent some money on going to a movie and he didn't even get anywhere close to the kind of content he got out of an episode of The Extra Environmentalist. So we really appreciate the donation, Matt, and you'll be getting some stickers. Jim from Seattle also sent in a paper check. This is our first paper donation. And let me just say, Jim, thank you so very much for sending that check all the way across the United States to my mailbox. I was ecstatic to see that land on my desk. And it's something very special when you actually see something that you've created from nothing manifest itself into a piece of paper that lands on your desk. That's probably the exact same feeling that Ben Bernanke has in creating something (laughs) out of nothing and it lands his paper on his desk every day. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Thank you so very much for that donation. Hey, Extra Environmentalist Steve here, wishing you greetings from Washington, D.C. I just finished up lunch, and I'm out sitting enjoying a nice day on the National Mall. And uh, I just thought I'd drop you guys a line let you know that I attended the Age of Limits conference in Pennsylvania a week or so ago. Uh, this conference wasn't like some of the other peak oil conferences I've heard about. Uh, instead of the science or the geology or the economic concerns of peak oil. This one dealt with the big questions about what type of society forms in the wake of declining energy supplies. And uh, it was held at this 150-acre inner sanctuary, which amounted to a farm, campground, and nature preserve called Four Quarters. Very, very rural. It was really hot and humid, and all the presentations and conversations occurred outdoors in the shade with a lot of informal seating. There were about 120 people there, kind of a mixed bag of people from all over the country, you could say. Uh, everybody was really friendly, uh, and it was actually really refreshing to talk op- openly about subjects that would earn you some blank stares around the water cooler at work. Uh, also, the casual nature of the conference made it really easy to talk to some of the presenters like John Michael Greer and Dmitry Orlov. So, all in all, I had a really good time talking at length about so many of the issues that all of us should be concerned with. 
Anyway, thought I would call and offer you all some eyewitness reporting. Keep up the good work, and be sure to look me up when you're back in D.C. See ya. Thanks for calling in, Steve, and it's great to hear that you were able to make it over to the Age of Limits conference and talk to people that we've had on our show, like John Michael Greer, and have some discussions with them. And as we know, and as you mentioned, yes, a lot of the topics that we bring up would definitely raise some eyebrows around the water cooler, but you can know from listening to the Extra Environmentalist and the many people who write in and leave voicemails that you are not alone in thinking about these things and talking about these things. And so we're hoping that just knowing that all of these other people are out here gives you and everyone else who listens to the show just a little bit more encouragement to be able to know that they're not alone and that they can talk about these things and that you're not crazy for thinking that our civilization is completely unsustainable. I have tried to bring up these topics around a water cooler in the past. And when I say extra environmentalist, people are like, oh, that means you like the environment a lot. And I'm like, well, yeah, I do like the environment, but there's a whole lot more that goes into being an extra environmentalist. And then they kind of just click off and stop listening. But I have found out that passing them a business card or a sticker makes them think a little bit more. They're like, oh, they have a logo and a sticker that I could put on my cubicle wall. Maybe I'll listen to what they have to say now. Yeah, once you have a sticker, it's serious. It's very serious. Yeah, I had a coworker who downloaded two episodes, and he said he listened to the first five minutes, and then he stopped listening. Awesome. That is exactly what we're going for on this show. I said, congratulations, you downloaded two episodes. That is amazing. Yeah. You are so cool. And he, he liked that I called him cool. Yeah. So he might go listen another five minutes. Yes, if everybody can get their coworkers to download and then shun the show, that is mission accomplished for the day. It was a big deal for him. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So just as a disclaimer, we're going to talk about an actual product that costs money here on the show, but we in no way were supported or sponsored by this company. Yeah, I too found bad. Out, yeah. <laughs> I found out about this thing because I was on the sustainability idea review board and it's called a BioLite stove. And you actually got one recently, Seth, which is yeah, pretty I awesome. I pre-ordered it, and it just came in the mail today. So it landed on my desk, just like that donation the other day did. And I opened it up, and it is a stove. It's about the size of your hands in a circle around. And it has this little power pack that kind of sits on the outside of it. And the cool thing about this thing is not only does it does it make a lot of heat so you can make boil your water and make some tasty dinner but you have this little metal piece that sticks out over the top of the stove that converts the heat coming out of the wood-burning stove into actual electricity which you can then plug a usb port into the outside of it and charge your usb powered devices yeah so what you're telling me is i can power my usb devices now entirely off of wood entirely off of wood and justin you and i have discussed in the past one day doing our whole podcast powered by wood this is a lofty goal and will require a lot of uh planning and forethought in the future into the future but how cool would that be to power our whole show from sticks we've got usb microphones so we just plug those in light some fires and off we go yeah we could totally just light a bunch of fires up and there we go podcasting into the air yeah but actually it's it has some very practical uses because in greece right now they're talking about not being able to pay the bills for their national utility grid for the energy that powers their national utility grid and they're really 
very serious that sometime in the next few months, all the lights could go out. So, Seth, if you were in Greece and you had your BioLite stove, sure, the national grid may be going down, but at least you could charge that iPod. That's right. And I could just tear down pieces of my house and burn it and there's electricity. <laughs> or, you know, go out to my neighbor's vineyard and cut down his olive trees and burn those. And yeah, I have exactly. electricity. Yeah. Problem solved. Done. Boom. Done. Biolite stoves, the rescue. And if anyone out there works for Biolite stoves and wants to kick us some money for giving a free plug, you know, that'd be great. Yeah, if you want to donate, if you're Biolite stoves and you want to donate, we will accept your donation. But otherwise, we'll just enjoy the fact that I can now charge my phone off of wood. I think that's, that's right. really the future is just wood-powered <laughs> iPhones. And if only everything could be powered off of wood. I really think that iPhone 6 will just have a furnace built into it and you just like <laughs> put the wood in and it's like brrr. Maybe it'll have like a little nuclear reactor. You can just put your, your uranium in there. So thanks for hanging with us while we gushed over the fact that we can now power our electronic devices off of wood. But that wraps <laughs> up everything that we had for the show today. So we really need to figure out what we're going to do with all of these wonderful t-shirts that Kevin printed out for us. We really, really need your help to figure out how we're going to get these out to you. If there needs to be some kind of contest, if, if it needs to be some kind of donation maximum minimum thing, this yeah, needs to happen because we need these t-shirts out into the world and out of my bedroom where they're living currently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we need to be able to uh, maybe have a contest saying most creative way that you've shared the extra environmentalist with your friends or the most extra environmentalist topic that you've ever talked about with a friend that came up in the wrong way. Maybe so it's an audio movie that you make using your smartphone and an audio software that that really depicts what it means to be an extra environmentalist. I've been listening to a lot to the Truth podcast and it's pretty fantastic. But if you want to hear more from the Extra Environmentalists, there is always more to be had. Our website has tons of episodes, and that website can be found at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Our Facebook page, which has all sorts of conversations, which we put out all different kinds of links about things that we find interesting and things that you might find interesting, can be found at Extra Environmentalist. Just put it into Facebook. You can find it there. Our Twitter handle, XEnvironmental, has been gaining all sorts of followers, just really blowing up. Stitcher Radio is a way to listen to us without even having to download any of our episodes, but you can listen to them on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. Yeah, we're almost at 500 Facebook likes, which is incredible. It would be amazing if our listeners could push us up to that 500 mark, just because 500 just looks so nice. It's a nice round number. Yeah. A nice round. And after 500 is 1,000. Yeah. And on Twitter, we're queuing up the latest news about the transition that we're going through economically. If you want to find out about a lot of the stories that we discuss on our show before we even discuss them, the latest on the EU's failing attempts to bail out their banks and stave off bank runs, you can find all of that out on our Twitter feed. That's right, Justin. If listeners out there want to leave us a voicemail using our online voicemail our online voicemail box, you can find us using your regular cell phone or regular landline phone. Dial the country code of plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two, and you can leave those voicemails in the day and the night. If you like the people that you hear leaving us voicemails, you too could be part of that voicemail revolution. Yeah, leave us a book recommendation. Tell us how your day was. You know, tell us what you're doing out in the garden and what you have growing for this season. We want to know, 
and everybody who leaves a voicemail also gets a special mixtape. And this month features the fabulous words of Alan Watts set to some really slick music. Ooh, so, I like Alan Watts. Yeah, He's cool. Great stuff. We already have a farm equipment correspondent out there. If you have a speciality different than that, we'd love to hear from you as well. Or if you want to shout out and say, this is Justin Ritchie from Vancouver, BC, and you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, we'll throw you in there on an episode. Or you say, this is somebody, somebody from somebody, somebody, and I hate The Extra Environmentalist. We'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah, you guys are crazy. You guys are out of your minds. We want to hear it all. That's right. We have an amazing blog that's just going super well. We have all sorts of guest contributors coming in from all around the world. And you can find that blog hosted by our amazing Extra Environmentalist blog editor, Louisa, at extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog. We just did a redesign about a month ago. So if you haven't checked it out or you've, you've been waiting to check it out because you're like, oh, I know they're going to do a new design as soon. Now is the time to go check it out. You can leave a comment. You can get in contact with Louisa and say, hey, Louisa, I want to write an article about this and this and this. And she will help you to write that article. In addition, you can send us a regular email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And we have an amazing Vimeo channel, which we just mentioned at www.vimeo.com slash extra environmentalist. And Justin, I think I'm out of ways that you can get in contact with us now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have been leaving comments on our episodes on the actual site at extraenvironmentalist.com, which is great too. So all of that is how you can interact with us. We want to co-create this show with our listeners so that way you include your questions and everything in with our guests too. And Kevin in San Diego, who also sent us the stickers and t-shirts, he suggested that we speak to Makana in the first place. And so thanks to him for making that suggestion and making this interview happen. And once again, many thanks to Kevin from the Sustainable Guidance YouTube channel for production assistance on this episode in taking the lead on editing down our conversation with Makana. So many thanks to Kevin. Big, big props to Kevin. Thank you so much. And with that, we're going to close out this episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Thanks again for joining us. Justin and I are overjoyed that you have sat through yet another episode of The Extra Environmentalist, stayed with us to the very end, and get out there and throw an Extra Environmentalist sticker on your grandmother. Today's uh, cultural story, if, if we have a cultural myth, it's the myth of, of progress, the myth that the uh, global economy can continue to, to grow forever. And I think, obviously, the, the, the bulk of biophysical science is against that myth. So we started out with, with what Herman Daly, a well-known ecological economist, called a relatively empty world. It was empty of human beings and, it, and, and our artifacts. So we've now spent a few centuries growing, but the world's now full. So the very conditions that uh, enabled us to grow for several generations and get used to the fact that this growth could continue 
are changed by growth itself. So the, the, the mere scale of the, the, the very scale of the human economy now has so changed the environment in which it has evolved that it's increasingly difficult to think that we can carry on. Our cultural myth has run its course. There may have been a time when it, it was useful in moving things forward, but certainly if we don't change our cultural myth to conform to biophysical reality, which is the reality of limits to material growth, uh, then we're going to have huge problems on our hands in the next few decades. Pe people acquire their cultural narrative over the course of 20 or 30 years of simply growing up in that culture. Um, well, what we're engaged in right here is a process called social learning. And to change a cultural narrative peacefully often takes decades. And you can see that in our own lifetimes. Uh, civil liberties is a new dimension of our cultural neighbor, uh, narrative. But it took decades for civil liberties to become a respected uh, idea. Women's liberation, gay liberation, or other dimensions of our current cultural narrative that take decades before they're generally accepted. And there's still a large number of people who don't accept any of those things. So changing the cultural narrative purposefully through this kind of uh, exchange is a very slow and arduous process. It takes decades. The problem is we don't have decades. And uh, I think we, we really need to have all of our media come together in a conscious effort to bring this new story of our dilemma out there. We've got to take advantage of the full, of the full power of the, uh, the internet. So the means are there to change the cultural narrative. The evidence that there's a crunch coming is before us. We could handle it if we were to come together as a species with intelligence and foresight to solve this problem so that it doesn't result in catastrophic decline for anybody. Uh, the problem is that we tend to revert to denial and tribalism and then as the crunch comes, uh, global strife, warfare and, and catastrophe is, is an equal possibility. Archaeologist Sander van der Loo. What defines at a certain point how people do things? That definition is not what they know how to do. The perimeter of what they know how to do is defined by what they've never thought about, the ideas they've never had. And so it's a culture, a society, grows out of a starting point by working at the boundaries of that knowledge and expanding that knowledge. But the whole cluster of that knowledge stays related. So it would seem that in theory, at least, you could start inventing in a completely different domain that nobody has ever thought about, and you could get that innovation going further and further. That is in very great contrast to what you're saying, which I think what you're saying is true for those technologies and those things that in our society are established things. 
But what I'm also arguing is that I think we could innovate at the edges between those areas where we have a lot of knowledge and those areas where we have no knowledge at all. But of course, the difficulty is that if you have no knowledge about it at all, you've got to find a starting point. In a world where all governments have failed, only one option was too small to fail. Honey, are you taking Ralph to Ohio for his caucus at 3 p.m. today? Honey, I'm on my way to work right now, but I'll make sure that I drop Ralph off at his campaign speech after I pick him up from daycare. When all the politicians started acting like children, the children fought back. Popsicles and teddy bears. I'm six and a half years old, and I want to be the next president of the United States of America. Even though they were young, they made the Republicans and the Democrats look childish. The speaker will recognize the Honorable Senator from Florida. Hello, ma'am. I ha I'm proposing that what we do is we all get together and share our toys. What if everybody made their own Play-Doh? But what they weren't prepared for was the backlash to their policies. We're here on the uh, Brian Report, and we have a special child senator guest. Uh, kid, hey, kid, senator. So you're saying, kid, that you want to take Play-Doh out of the hands of Chinese workers and make everyone make it for themselves? Is that what you're saying? You want playtime instead of work time. You're trying to destroy the country. You're undermining what it means to be an American. You want to be some kind of left-wing liberal extremist. Well, well, yes, O'Brien. I, I just feel like our policy of, of going out and being friends with uh, with every other country is, is really the best way forward. And I also think that playtime is more fun than work time, especially sitting in front of computers and playing Plants vs. Zombies. And I really enjoy planting flowers. And I also think that a recess hour of two hours instead of just one hour will contribute to our well-being. And I also think that flower beds look a lot better than tank beds and truck beds. You're crazy, kid. You're going to ruin the whole country. But what those with the TV show didn't know is that the number of children in politics would only grow. In recent reports, it looks like 90% of the Senate has been replaced with children under the age of 12. Now I, now I know that this seems kind of a strange trend, but when you consider that everybody in there was basically mental children anyways, we're just replacing them with people who are actually physical children. And besides, their policies are making everybody happier. When Social Security went bankrupt, they just gave me a lollipop. I felt a lot better. Who cares about medical attention when I have lollipops? All these war drums that we were beating with Iran, they just started playing actual drums, and it was really nice to hear them all playing together in the Senate like that, and it just made me feel warm inside. I like playing the tambourine. Where is, where is my mom? 
When I grow up, after being a senator, I'm going to be a fireman so I can put out all the political fires and show everybody how to be nice to each other. My name is Sammy. I approve this message, and so are my parents. And now we take you live to an exclusive interview with the parents of President Johnny. We're sitting here with Mr. and Mrs. Grand President. How did it feel when your son first decided to run for the presidency? I was a little bit skeptical at first, but his policies seem to be so smart. And, you know, he has passed kindergarten, so he's got more education than most of the senators that are already in there. He was my son, so I decided to vote for him. I knew I wanted someone as my president who'd at least been potty trained so they'd know how to deal with all the shit that comes through Washington. Being president at the age of six and a half years old is quite an accomplishment. Where do you see Jimmy going in the future? Will he win a second term? Of course he's gonna win a second term. And after he finishes, he's gonna be a policeman. Jimmy doesn't really like foreign policy too much though. He says that he doesn't really like Chinese food, so he's not gonna participate in any, any kind of takeout globalization. Coming this election cycle, the biggest problems sometimes have the littlest solutions. Now that he's president, Jimmy doesn't need a babysitter anymore because the Secret Service takes care of him. Now Carol and I can go out to dinner more evenings. It's really helped our sex life. From the director that brought you Kindergarten Cop 4 comes a new story about how little changes can make a big impact. This fall, the next generation of politicians are too small to fail. The children of the